Scripture reading this morning comes from 1 John chapter 3, 1 John 3, we're going to be reading verses 23 and 24. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Amen. You may be seated, dear saints. We're finally finishing chapter 3. I think it took about seven sermon installments. Chapter 4 is extraordinarily exciting. A wonderful chapter. Love featured there in Even our call to worship, we used it today, seeing that God is love. But before we look to the text of the God who is love, let's look to the throne of the God who is love, who has given us the son of his love and every good and perfect thing. Father, we thank you that you've done that. Not only not left us alone, you've loaded us with blessings We are those who are so overwhelmed with your goodness that we thank you. You've given us the word, the sacrament, and prayer, all to direct us to Jesus. We feast on him. May we do it well here today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So most of us know the greatest commandment. You know, the Bible's got lots of commandments, but there is one greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We read about it in Deuteronomy 6, 9, or 6, 4 through 9. And then also the second commandment related to it is that we love our neighbors ourselves. And those are found in Mark twelve twenty eight through 32. These are great commandments, but they are also commandments that necessitate faith. Because without faith, there can be no love. So really, prior faith in Christ is requisite for us to keep any of these commandments. And therefore, we're going to be making the point today that this is true, that faith and love are joined in Jesus Christ and in the hearts and minds and lives of every Christian churchman alive today. It's regenerative faith that we have. Now, today's text does not explicitly mention our love for the triune God, but it does implicitly say so because it commands us to believe in the Son of God, the second person, and to love our fellow churchmen, our brothers and sisters, which love would, of course, be impossible without that previous love that we have for Christ, which comes to us because God first loved us. He took the initiative to love us and elect us, predestine us and atone for us, and then to apply that beautiful redemption and justification by the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. So here we are, the blessed people of God, given every good and perfect gift. Now, we're going to say that the fullness of the greatest commandment necessitates miraculous saving faith, which leads to love. And therefore, in light of that, let's make it our goal this Resurrection Day to love God in Jesus Christ through sincere faith. Looking at just two verses, 23 and 24 of 1 John 3, the greatest commandment in its fullness, the doctrine, the greatest commandment to love God is birthed out of saving faith in Christ. And birth is a good word here because this is how we enter the kingdom of God. We're born into the kingdom of God. God is our Father, and he births us into his church, his 
kingdom, as per 1 Peter 1.3, and to be born into this great divine, heavenly, and earthly church family means that we have an older brother, and his name is Jesus. He's the one that has gone before us, who knows us, who understands us perfectly. He is the only mediator between God and men, 1 Timothy 2.5. He is the one that we look to. We don't look to anyone else. Ultimately, it is he himself. It's the presence of this divine human relative of ours that gives us full and proper meaning to make the statement that the greatest commandment to love God is birthed out of saving faith in Christ. First, there is no love where there is no Messiah. Now, John seems to intimate this in this text here today with the words that open verse 23. And this is God's commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Jesus Christ is the embodiment and the personification of all love, true love, real love, authentic love. He is the very being of it. All love comes to us from God through Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the church, through which we can show it to anyone in the world, or any part of the creation of the world. All love is brokered through Christ alone. Now we need to deeply imbibe that truth, or else we will inevitably be led astray, just like all the world is, in wrongly thinking that there can be love outside of Christ, which falsehood we with boldness and confidence deny and repudiate. There is no love outside of Jesus Christ. It just doesn't exist. Had God not first promised us and then fulfilled the promise by sending his Son into the world, which we're celebrating in the season, actually, not only would there be no hope, no life, no light, no joy, there would be no love either. But there is love, because it is in Christ, and it's in his church, and we're on the earth. So there is hope for this fallen world. True love is always easy to spot and identify, because true love always is focused on, centered on, and gives glory to God through the person of Jesus. This is why poor sinners in the world can only find love in Christ through the agency of his church as we bring the only message of love, which is the gospel of God's free, infinite mercy in Jesus Christ for dead, rebellious, lost, hopeless sinners, which we used to be. There is no love where there is no Messiah, And there is no redemption where there is no worship of God. Of course, it makes sense that there would be no redemption where there is no worship of God because the truly atoned for souls in Christ Jesus who make up his church live in the worship of God. Yes, on these high, wonderful days of holy worship, on the Sabbath days, the resurrection days, as we gather and convocate as the church of God in these special regulated Sabbath worship services, But even out from here as we live a life of worship, Romans 12, 1 and 2, everything we do from here is a life of worship, taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ, no matter where we go. You know that Psalm 107, verse 2a says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And we do. We say so. We say so in our hymns, our psalms, our prayers, our confessions. 
the hearings of sermons, the taking of the sacrament. Everything that we do here, we are saying that we belong to Jesus. Have you ever considered that Christ, love, joy, and fellowship all hold together and can never be separated? As a matter of fact, Christ's love, joy, and worship constitute the very life of every being that achieves the highest levels of what it means to be created in the image of God as a human being and then recreated into the image of the Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, which is the goal of every Christian churchman, to become like Christ in faith, humility, love, mercy, and every other good attribute. It's a process, and we're all on that continuum. But as long as we're there, that's all that matters. Let's go as low and humble as we possibly can in loving God and serving one another. This is why Christ and his church, his day and his worship, are at the center of God's entire universe of reality. You ever thought about that? Everything centers on what you're doing right here. The whole world is dictated, organized, ordered through what you're doing here. The world doesn't understand this, but that doesn't mean it's not true. The uniform testimony of the Holy Scripture is that what the church does in worshiping God governs everything. And therefore, dear saints, be thankful, humble, faithful, grateful for this high and holy calling that we have been given. For all of us who by God's grace love God, we also love fallen fellow human sinners And this love will compel us to invite them to come to church with us, to hear the stunning, unbelievable, gracious news that there is salvation provided for sinners lost in trespasses and sins. They can't work for it, earn it, merit it. But it is freely given to all who will receive, who will eat, who will want it, who will desire it. That's all that's required is a holy hunger For good things, the only good one, Jesus. This is good news for hopelessly lost souls. Let's look at these verses, 23 and 24, 1 John 3, and observe the simplicity of God's greatest commandment. You know that human works religion is terribly complicated, but Christ's true religion is gloriously uncluttered. Sinners, even Christian sinners, have a bad habit of wanting to import into their faith things that don't belong there. We saw that very graphically in our Christian education up here this morning in the adult class. We are notorious idol factories that will find any idol, even something good, and seek to replace Jesus with that thing. It is a curse on the fall. And it is a constant threat to the true religion. That's why we always are stripping away extraneous things to get to only the one that matters, Christ Jesus, and the simplicity of this glorious grace that we have in him. Some things, however, are essential. There's no question about that. And Jesus, obviously, is the one absolute essential. His church, his gospel, his day, his worship is, too. And these things will always be prominent in true religion, although in false religion they dispense with it with ease. Not us. 
No. Let us really appreciate the simplicity of God's greatest commandments. First, he stresses but two, T-W-O, two objectives, faith and love, verse 23. And this is his, God's commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. You've got to love the Apostle John for constantly coming back to these basics like that. So he says, this is God's commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and we love one another. I mean, basically the greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment, wrapped up right there in verse 23 of chapter 3. So it's almost as if John is saying here in the clearest language I can give you is the briefest form of what it means, to, what it looks like to live the true religion, the, the faith of Christ as the church of Jesus. Not perfect, still reforming, still reviving, still being conformed to the image of Jesus, but in that beautiful harmony with him, the heartbeat of God in Christ Jesus. Verse 23 again opened with those great words, and this is his commandment. And only two things with one great background reference, Christ, are involved in it, and that is faith and love. You know, dears, I hope that love is a commandment. Uh, we see it right here in verse 23. He overtly states that love is a commandment. True Christians, dears, we do not have the luxury of not loving. We don't have the luxury of not loving God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We do not have the luxury of not loving our fellow Christian church members, those who are covenanted in Christ. We do not have the luxury of not loving sinners and our neighbors. We do not have that luxury... The world has that luxury, or should we call it curse or burden, but we don't have that option. Not at all. And in fact, obviously everyone, even those outside of Christ, have some love, because we all are attracted to various things, various idols, but true love is always in Christ. Someone might complain and ask, well, how can God command love? How can even God command love? Shouldn't love be something that just sort of naturally flows? Why should it be commanded? Well, that question really betrays two things, ignorance and worldliness, because we should know God well enough to understand that his commandments are not burdensome. John actually says that in 1 John 5, 3b. And we should also fully comprehend that the world's notion of love, being up, left up to libertine spirits, is really not love at all. It's sentiment at best, lust at worst. So only the true church knows, understands, and can exhibit love in the world. That's how critical your ministry is. The world needs love, but you're the only ones that can bring it. The simplicity of God's greatest commandment. He stresses but two objectives, faith and love. And he gives what he requires, love and security. Verse 24a. Whoever keeps his, God's commandment, abides in God and God in him. Now, this point on your outline is borrowing from St. Augustine's great maxim, which I'm putting into my own vernacular, namely, Heavenly Father, 
in Christ. Give me every grace necessary to please you. And then, after you've done that, command whatever you want. So that's the attitude that Christians have. God, give me what I have to have, and then I can do the supernatural, miraculous, impossible thing in your power because I am a supernatural, miraculous person who has been supernaturally transformed from what I used to be into who I am now, a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. To be clear, no one keeps God's commandments who isn't first in Christ, and the Apostle John is obviously assuming this point. But once we are in the Redeemer by grace through faith, and in him means to be in his very being of his faith, his life, his love, who he is, what he values, his gospel, his church. Once we are, we will keep God's commandments, albeit imperfectly in ourselves, that's for sure. But here's the good news. Perfectly in Christ, who is our substitutionary atonement, our vicarious redeemer, who takes our paltry efforts done in faith and applies them and presents them to the Father, and he receives them as perfectly acceptable because they have been anointed with, ordained with, atoned for by the blood of the Son of God. So as you do anything in faith, and you recognize, boy, that's been very done very well. I still didn't do a great job. God receives it perfectly. It's a beautiful thing. All in Christ. The doctrine of our abiding in God, which is mentioned here in verse 24a, and God's abiding in us is the practical essence of the genuine Christian life. But he'll never abide in us if we aren't in his presence, if we aren't feasting on him like you're doing right now, and you will be doing in the sacrament, many of you as well. We abide in him with Jesus Christ as his church, and the Holy Spirit is given to us to make us temples of God where he abides in us. As a corporate temple, yes, but even as individual stones of that church. And I reference for you 1 Corinthians 6, 19a. The more we lovingly, joyfully, and with great anticipation feast on Christ, Lord's Day to Lord's Day, the more we willingly and even happily keep his commandments. Isn't that weird that we could actually think, yeah, it's okay, it's nice to keep God's commandments. And What happens when we keep God's commandments? Do we get full of ourselves and puffed up and arrogant and proud? No. We recognize that it's a privilege, and I didn't do it as well as I'd like. But thank you, God, that by your grace, we're able to keep God's commandments. And the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that starts here with what you're doing right now and our neighbor as ourselves. We don't keep God's commandments to earn or merit God's favor We don't even seek to keep God's commandments to assuage a guilty conscience or to calm and steady an unsure heart. That's not why we keep God's commandments. Instead, we keep God's commandments as a spontaneous response of children to a father that we love in Jesus Christ, a loving, gracious, good, holy, 
tender, kind, gentle, merciful, gracious, benevolent Father. That's how we keep God's commandments. It is our keeping of his commandments, again, not done for justification, because no works go into justification. None. Zero. We, if we do keep God's commandments, it is evidence that we're in Christ, and it is the sanctification process that we are talking about in Christ alone. The simplicity of God's greatest commandment. Two objectives. He gives what he requires. And finally, he seals the reality of our life via the loving Holy Spirit, verse 24b. And by this we know that he, God, abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Now, we alluded to the Spirit earlier, but John brings the third person of the Holy Trinity to the fore here at the end of the chapter. And the blessed Holy Spirit is given to the church, but also to each individual member of the church. It is a beautiful gift that God gives us his Holy Spirit. The teaching of verse 24b is magnificent. True Christians possess the most objective evidence of God's existence, power, love, and glory by the fact that we're given the Holy Spirit. Now, we're told that. That's objective. It's true. It's propositional. God says, I give my Holy Spirit to my my church, my elect people that I've redeemed. I give him to you. The Holy Spirit resides in you. He is the power, the strength that applies all these glories of Jesus to the to the situations of life, to every challenge, everything that we do is done in the power of the Holy Spirit, the residency of the person of God within us. It's also a supremely subjective proof because as we think and feel even and sense the the Holy Spirit within us, And this is one of the reasons we want to be close to God, because we want to have that more palpable sense, feeling of his presence, his closeness. And that is true. We can grieve the Holy Spirit, and we don't want to do that. But we do want to love the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity. And he's given to us right here in this text. Interestingly, though, it's also true that all people outside of Christ don't understand this. They can't know it. They can't see it. The only thing they can behold is the fruit of the Holy Spirit flowing out from us. And that's where we bring love and grace to them. We believers, in a very real sense, live in a different world than unbelievers do. That is true. The evidence of God's existence and all his grace and love for us is completely satisfactory and fulfilling. But again, for those outside of Christ, they can't see it. But shouldn't this give us compassion? That's where we were, blind, lost, dead, rebels in sin. Can't see anything. It gives us compassion for the world. Notice the phrase here John uses in verse 24b, By this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. That's a beautiful thing. A a solid knowledge based in one we can't see and yet we know is there. We even sense his presence in the corporate 
body of the church, but even in our own individual bodies, which are now temples of the Holy Spirit. Let's do a little more application this morning and comprehend why the greatest commandment must be married to regeneration-driven faith. Remember that regeneration precedes faith. I met with a young pastor this week from a different denomination, very solid, fine young man. And I was teaching him this, and, and it meant a lot for him to, to see it, that regeneration precedes faith. It's not like we all of a sudden believe and then God's bound to give us something. No, we're first regenerated, and then when we hear the gospel clearly portray, portrayed or given to us or proclaimed, then we accede to it because we've already been regenerated. The Holy Spirit goes and wherever he will as per John 3, and we don't know, like the wind, where he's going, and yet that's the way it is with the Holy Spirit regenerating people. You want to pray for your friends and neighbors and unbelieving associates and compatriots, pray that the Holy Spirit would regenerate them. We don't know who the elect are. But if God lays someone on your heart, that's a good sign. Not an absolute one, but it's a good one. Pray for them. We know that the uh, Holy Spirit is given and that faith is given. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it's a gift of God. We didn't conjure it up ourselves. And the greatest commandment, as it itself states, requires love. But love is only possible where there's faith in Jesus. And that is why the Apostle John enjoined of first importance upon us in this text at verse 23a, faith in Christ. Hence, let us better understand why the greatest commandment must be married to regeneration-driven faith. First, because otherwise we would never know love. No, we would never love God. Sorry, we would never love God. You know, what would life be? without love. It wouldn't be life because God is love. We just read that in 1 John 4.16. God is love. John says that elsewhere in that chapter as well. One of the saddest things about life in a fallen world is that there's no love in the fallen world. There isn't. There's, we have to face that. Listen, outside of Jesus and the true church, there isn't any love. There isn't. There's a desire for it. There's a hunger and a thirst for something that we innately want as creatures made in the image of God, but there isn't any love. There's just frustration and futility and disgust and anger and angst and feelings of shame and bitterness and all those things that attend the seeking of love outside of Jesus. In the world, outside of Christ, there isn't any love. But the good news is there is love on a fallen earth. There is. There is love on this fallen earth. But all of it is in Christ, brokered through his church and shared through his gospel, which you take into your worlds this week in the way you live, the words you use, the expressions and ways that you act. That is love. The world sees it then. 
By this all men will know that we are his Jesus' disciples if we love one another. That, that's a great evangelistic tool. That's John thirteen thirty five. That's what it's about. There is love in the world, but it's all in the context of his kingdom, his church. Be light bearers, Ephesians 2 or 5, 8. Be light bearers. Take the light of Jesus into the world this week. The church is the illuminated city, the greatly lit up city. If we think Paris is a city of lights, it's nothing compared to the church. Revelation 21, 23, and 24, it's an illuminated city. It doesn't even need the sun. Out of this irradiated civic glory of the city of God, you march as bold conquerors and ambassadors of Christ. You go out of those gates, Romans 8.37, conquering the world, not the world conquering you. As you do that, have compassion on souls who are lost in death and sin, darkness, disease, condemnation, and guilt. Invite them into the gates of the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, 25 through 27. Invite them in. Bring them in. Tell them to the best of your ability and opportunity about your glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Be willing to suffer as good soldiers of Christ. Recognize that it's all worth it. Everybody needs love, dears. And Jesus alone provides it. He does it through you, his church on earth. Why the greatest commandment must be married to regeneration-driven faith, because otherwise we would never love God, and we would never know the wonder of life, Christ. What is life without Jesus? Nothing. There's no life without him. Everything devoid of Christ is death. But we Christians are alive today in Christ as his church on this Lord's Day. Why is this? How is this? Because God has been so good to us and has loved us perfectly in Christ Jesus with a perfect love. What's our response to be? One of love. But how can we love unless we put our faith entirely, not in ourselves, not in idols, not in anything else, not the world, but in Jesus alone? So today, dears, let's do that yet again. Just relish, celebrate, enjoy, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, 4. And that delight is in Jesus completely, utterly. Fill your hearts with him. With the contents of this sermon, may it be Jesus, the sacrament, Jesus, the prayers, Christ alone. His bloody atonement has remitted all your sins, and his glorious resurrection has secured forever your righteous, just, perfect standing with the Father. Beloved, the greatest commandment in this fullness puts faith in Christ and love for God together. Let us bless God for the greatest commandment in its fullness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that that greatest commandment to love you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength is only possible through our living, vital faith in Jesus. We thank you that you gave us that too. For apart from you, we can do nothing. And you have provided us everything in Christ in whom we can do all things. We thank you in his holy name. Amen.